2: Welcome to Off Air. Now, I had suggested that Fee would be back today and uh, she's just had one of those tummy bugs that just has lingered. So she'll definitely be back on Monday. But Jane Mulcairins, who didn't lick Fee's chair, <laughs> uh, so it's very much still available. Cut <laughs> my tongue to myself yesterday. Is is with us. Yep. And as ever, you've got to dash off because Life at the Times newspaper is all-encompassing and forever busy. And today you've got, not scented candles to try, but you've got a leaving do A leaving do, yes. Yes, OK. Our,
3: our royal correspondent, yes. Valentine Lowe, is leaving, sadly. Yes. Is he? Uh, w- why is he leaving? Well, apparently he's retiring. OK. He is in his 60s. Right. I suspect Doesn't there might be it. another book deal, potentially. I'm just oh, speculating. A book deal? Mm, I mean, he has been the royal correspondent for the times for a while so suggesting you might know know, You might know a thing or two two. you might know a thing or two but yes it is quite busy i will tell you I, i trot up those back stairs Several times a day, Jane. I know. Well, very, it's, very, very good for my glutes.
2: It's, it's also, it's very much an upstairs, downstairs situation <laughs> here. So Fia and I occupy the main house and Jane Mulkerins lives in the... In a uh, coal shed. <laughs> basically <laughs> in the News UK equivalent of the coal shed. If
3: you had ever worked, well, not that we had Times Radio back in the day, mm. Wapping, but I did work for the Sunday Times in my first job back on the old plant in Wapping. Yes. And in the that we had the printers on site so the building did have bowels of the building where the where the where print the where the newspaper was made right and down there there was all sorts of things there was a sweet shop which was a bit weird um there was the place where you could go and get cash against expenses <laughs> if like me you were a very young reporter yeah. and just didn't have any money ever right um, and just cash against expenses so you know, it's if you're going out on a on a story on a job, yeah. so for example it was uh, it was the lead up to the Iraq war and there were human shields going to Iraq on, remember, a, on yeah. a London bus. Yeah. And I had to go with them and then I had to keep finding them around Europe. And I, I didn't have a big credit card. I was sort of 23 years old. Sorry, I so, just said,
2: oh, yes, as though I totally get what you're talking about. Human shields yeah. went to Iraq on a London bus. Yeah, uh, You'll have to Two of a them. Bit more about that.
3: Uh, so there were some British human shields going to pr- pr- uh, protect uh, what they saw as civilian... Um, targets in Iraq, so um schools and hospitals and things like that. And uh, a group of British human shields set off on two London buses from London and went all the way to Iraq. I I interviewed them when they left London and then a few days later my editor said, where are they? Ring them, hmm. go and find them. And so I flew to Rome and found them there, wrote a story, came back, flew to Istanbul, found them there. So there's a lot of running around. Um, but I didn't have any money. Well. So I didn't have a way of getting myself there and back. Uh, And if I needed anything when I was away, you know, I'd maxed out my, you know, my student loans and things. So Cashgate's expenses was when you go downstairs and say, I've got to go and do this story. I think I'm going to need some money. Um, and you basically just, it's like your dad giving you an envelope of money and just saying, bring me the receipt back. Oh, yeah. okay. It does sound fabulous. It was great. But also in the, in the bowels of the building, weirdly, yeah. was also a hair salon where you could have waxing done as well. Okay. Okay. In you, in your office, near I, the, near the printers.
2: I don't, <laughs> I didn't strange. think I could be more shocked. <laughs> basically you could live you could live in news international (laughs) hair (laughs) removal on site okay that's just well it isn't none of that happened at broadcasting house (laughs) i mean lord knows awful things did happen there but not that um right okay oh Right. I mean, some of those awful things were me presenting terrible <laughs> programmes uh, and some quite good ones, she said, slightly defensively. Now, a uh, big guest today. Um, Fee will have been, well, I know she was really disappointed to miss Anton de Beck because we've explained on the podcast that we take turns reading the books and Fee had read every word of Anton de seminal work, The Paris Affair. So she had any number of really good questions to ask him, but he is a very interesting interviewee. So he'll he'll come up in a moment or two, um, because uh, he there are there are always kind of big threads running through through every strictly, and, um, and this season is no different. I mean, I have to say, I'm not a fully paid up Anorak fan, but I do enjoy it every now and again. I mean, I, I think I told him I watched every episode. It's not quite true. But if I'm in on a Saturday night or a Sunday, the results show does a good job. It's a relatively compact edition, isn't it? And you can find out then who's been biffed off. Mm. So bite I'll, size. Bite, yeah, size, bite size version. Yeah. Okay. So, um, celebrity toilet encounters, period euphemisms. What else have we got today? A oh, rail travel. I've got rather a serious one here yes, about I rail like travel. Yes, I like rail travel. Can yes. I start by yes. wishing
3: you a happy Thanksgiving again? Oh, yes. Because yeah. we did discuss this earlier in the live show, but it is Thanksgiving Day in America. Or, as our listener says, over there,
2: as you like That's to say. I don't really understand. Take this is, is from Elizabeth.
3: Um, she's originally from the Wirral, but now living in Tennessee. Oh, right. And great. wanted to wish us both and Fee and all of the American listeners a very happy Thanksgiving today. She says, usually at Thanksgiving uh, gatherings, Americans are encouraged to share one thing they are grateful for at this time of year, which I mentioned earlier. Mm. At the risk of sounding cheesy, I wanted to say how grateful I am to Offair for bringing mm. me a daily taste of home. And to Jane and Fee, who feel like old friends, she says old in inverted commas, by yeah. the way. I'm not sure if that's better or Just worse. Just watch it. <laughs> <laughs> i look forward to your bro- your podcast monday to thursday and feel more connected to british culture and current events and i have to say without being really cheesy when i lived in america it very much served that purpose for me too oh yeah it was just like a taste of home a taste of home yeah like marmite and crumpets which i did take back with me so did you yeah okay. oh i had a freezer full of full of crumpets if i was having a sad day Oh. Yeah, I would, that was what I'd do. I'd, I'd, I'd ration them for See, bad days.
2: Hearing anecdotes like that is exactly why I've never, ever felt the need to live abroad. <laughs> Just can't, I just couldn't In case do it. you didn't have enough crumpets. In case I ran out of crumpets, <laughs> ran out of that honey I like from little it just doesn't it's probably not English, but I'll buy it there. Anyway, uh that's not the point. Um okay, well thank you very much. It's Sue, isn't it? Um Elizabeth. Elizabeth, Elizabeth. Oh I don't know why I sort of, sort of do apologise. Um have a lovely Thanksgiving, Elizabeth. I'm just thinking about time difference. By now people really will be sick of their families, won't they? You know? Oh no, it's only midday. Oh it's yeah, but exactly. <laughs> So people will be falling out all over the United States by now. Murder around the table already. Uh, But you had some nice ones there, did you? And would you, as as somebody from outside the country, be invited to someone's home? So
3: that was a sort of interesting thing. I never really got invited to an American family Thanksgiving. Um, It was odd. People would go home to their own families. Mm. Um, I often got invited to friends who I'd made who were perhaps other expats, um, for their, we, we would have a sort of expats Thanksgiving a lot. Okay. Um, I had friends who'd bought big houses upstate and would, who were great cooks and mm. would have Thanksgiving. But, but there was definitely a sense, that was one of the times of year when you felt like a bit of an outsider sometimes. Um, because people would go back and do their very traditional Thanksgiving things with their families and you would make up your own little Thanksgiving traditions, right. which was actually lovely by the end. Mm. Um, by the end of a decade there, I had, Certain, fr- certain of our friends would do Thanksgiving, certain of us would do Christmas or New Year. And um, I, I managed to cultivate a very good group of cooks as friends. So yeah, you know that's Mark, you? that Now I'm,
2: I'm not silly. No, she really isn't. Um, this is another... I think it's probably the ultimate uh, celebrity encounter for the time being. Uh, my celebrity toilet encounter was a couple of years back at the National Theatre, says our correspondent. I can't exactly remember the play we'd gone to see, but I think... It was A Streetcar Named Desire with Gillian Anderson playing Blanche. Blimey, I bet that was good. Uh, The play was in The Round. Oh, yes, in The Round. I'm familiar with this, but of course, (laughs) Fee, who doesn't go to the theatre, wouldn't know. Uh, And in a seat across from us, we spotted a woman who seemed to have her glasses on and kept them on for the whole play, which seemed odd and drew our attention. On further inspection, we realised it was Anna Wintour. During the interval, Anna was spotted in the bar area, looking around a bit lost, probably because... (laughs) She was wearing her sunglasses. (laughs) I realised this is my opportunity, walked up to her and asked, are you looking for the toilet? (laughs) Yes, she replied. I pointed over towards the female toilets and said, they're just over there. I mean, this is quite a conversation. This. She then placed her hand on my arm and said, thank you, darling you are wonderful. And this is how I was told I was wonderful by Anna Wintour, a story I won't ever tire of telling at any opportunity. Well, that's from Andrew. Andrew, congratulations on that. That is a very good celebrity encounter.
3: I just love the idea that Andrew spotted her, marched up to her and asked her if she was looking
2: for the loo. It's pretty bold. Yeah, but I think it's a safe bet because there's never a time in your life when you wouldn't I mean, you couldn't do with a visit to the loo. <laughs> I, I had to go out during the, the radio programme this afternoon during, a, mercifully, a pre-recorded item about Black Friday bargains, <laughs> which was just long enough to get me to the loo. Because you started doing live radio on Times mm-hmm. Radio, haven't you? And it's a long stint yours. I, I'm I'm too scared to go You're to the loo. You're too scared to go for a week? Yeah.
3: Just, mm. As I said, not because I don't think there's enough time in the news. Yeah, there always is. It's like three and a half minutes. Yeah, you've got it, loads of time. It's just in case I... Stumble and fall over or something in the corridor. Bloody, I thought I was a hurt catastrophist. Myself. Why would you necessarily? I just think something a- could go terribly wrong outside that door. And I mean, Jane, I've fallen off a lot of bicycles, I've broken shoulders. Oh, that's true, I actually. am quite clumsy. I could legitimately hurt myself on the way to the loo, yeah. and then you know, and I'm the fill-in. I'm the I'm the fill-in yeah. presenter. What commode. happens if the fill-in? What
2: happens if the fill hurts themselves en route to the loo? No, it's a good point. Don't yeah. ever go. But I do think a commode could be provided. Uh, Caroline says, uh, "I work with someone who referred to her periods as the Obi Joyfuls." <laughs> <laughs> That's good, though not as good as what was the Danish one? Um, the red. The red. Oh, the no. The Germany is
3: the Red Army. The Red Army the here. Uh, the Red mm-hmm. Army here. Communists in the Funhouse. Was That's Communists in the Funhouse, which is excellent. Yeah. Um, so we were talking turnip yesterday. Yeah. Uh, after your wonderful interview. Uh, Margaret says, Dear Jane and Fee, having moved from Newcastle to London, I noticed that Southerners were definitely confused about Swedes and turnips. My extensive research over 30 years has told me the confusion starts about level with Hull. (laughs) I mean, Lots (laughs) of things
2: get more confused beyond Hull. That reminds me of the BBC (laughs) yesterday went to cover the autumn statement. They went to Hull and they made a great deal of it. They stood in a museum in Hull talking about ordinary people and it was just one of those i i could just see them all sitting around in london deciding where's regional let's go to a region somewhere really obscure (laughs) have you ever been to hull no let's go there (coughs) off they went anyway above hull apparently a turnip is a turnip
3: and below that line the confusion starts margaret says if you're able to help me test this hypothesis i'd be very grateful it's never too late for a doctorate Right. I love the idea of a turnip doctorate.
2: Uh, There probably is one. I I, I absolutely, I remain convinced that you can do and people have done PhDs in just about anything. Absolutely everything. Anonymous writes uh, today about the expense of rail travel. They say, I work in rail. Never thought I'd love it, but I do. There are so many falsehoods about rail and the media love nothing more than a bad rail story. The overly simplified explanation of the problem is politics. We could have cheap rail fares, but that would require epic subsidy, which would need to be funded by taxes. That requires a mental shift from politicians to the public to understand the value in rail and what it can and can't do, and whether we want to prioritise rail in our national spend. Over the years, rail subsidy has been squeezed, which means more income has to come from fares. The argument being, why should people who don't use rail pay more in tax to fund those who do? I get that, but Mm. my beef with this is that obviously at the moment many of us are genuinely trying not to drive very Mm. much. I have got a petrol car. I don't drive long distance. Very rarely drive to Liverpool where I go to see my parents. I do want to go on the train because I believe it's the right thing to do. So it's infuriating. We need to have a proper grown-up conversation about this as about so many other things.
3: Yeah, our our correspondent does also go on to say that rail infrastructure and trains are expensive yeah. and that we need people to operate them um, and there's actually very little of the rail network that can operate fully commercially because of the very high fixed operating costs and that governments have squeezed everything so it is operating on a shoestring and I, I completely get that. She says it washes its face but not necessarily through the revenue that it takes mm. and politicians can't get their head around this and therefore fund it. they can't fund it properly and we need to stop believing that the train operating companies are the problem. I mean... She's saying they don't make huge financial returns, which I I do understand. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I don't even own a car. I've never owned a car because I've always lived in cities that are very well connected. And and like you, my, my family lives sort of the other end of the country where I wouldn't drive to even if I no, had a car. No. Um, but you go to other countries and you see how well... The, the railways are funded they must be doing um, something Sweden right. yeah I, I mean the, the high-speed train that I use in the summer in Sweden incredibly cheap Korea the where I was two weeks ago to go from Busan in the south on the high-speed train to Seoul uh, to the capital which is about two and a half hours on a high-speed train cost less than 30 pounds
2: so what so all the arguments outlined in our very expert email mm. there why don't they apply in countries like South Korea
3: well, I presume that the, the government subsidises it. Yeah. And, yeah, and the public goes along with it. And the public it. goes along with it and uses yeah. it. Okay. I mean, it was packed yeah. on a Monday afternoon right. yeah. because people are clearly using that to get around the country. right? And it's opened up the country. It's opened up tourism and jobs. And you know, as our correspondent says, that it's about connecting people, not just moving things mm. around. Mm. Um, but But our government definitely doesn't want to subsidise it to the extent that it's necessary to. It would
2: seem not, and you wonder whether anything might happen were we to have a change of government. Hmm. Uh, Can we do another slightly serious one? Um, This is from
3: our correspondent I'm not going to name her. She hasn't said to stay anonymous, but it's a very personal email, so I won't, I won't say her name for now. She says, I felt compelled to write to you for the first time following much discussion on the woes of being both single and married in recent podcasts. I've been single since I was 20, barring casual liaisons, of which there have been reassuringly many, which amounts to nearly 30 years now. A correspondent says, fortunately, I never wanted children, but otherwise I'm just very fed up of having to do it all by myself. And even more fed up of the conflicting advice of you try too hard, you need to try harder. You're so lucky you don't have a husband, children. Uh, as a footnote, marriage and, a ch- marriage and children, she says, are a choice. Mm. The lack of either is very often not a choice. She does say, I have a brilliant life, and many lovely friends, but I'm sick of being told I should be grateful for this by people who've been lucky enough to get to choose whether to stay in an unsatisfactory relationship. What I'm really asking for is a little bit of unqualified sympathy for me and my comrades, rather than people who've never been here explaining how not to be here.
2: I think that's a great email. It's a really interesting
3: yeah. email, isn't it? Mm. Um, because I think it's the grass is always greener. Oh, yeah. The grass is always greener. Um I have many friends in unsatisfactory relationships.
2: I can't comment at this point. I'm Um, sure
3: I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) I have many friends in unsatisfactory relationships. And... I'm, so I, I'm long time single as well, and, but but I am
2: I do look at them, and, and there are very few friends relationships I look at, and I think I'd like that. It's so difficult. Isn't it? I mean, I'm very long time single, and largely I would say content with that. Mm. But everyone has their moments, mm. and I suspect our correspondent may be having a moment right yeah. now. But th- this is a sort of time of year that can be a bit wearing for those of us who aren't in any kind of committed relationship. Yeah. Um. There's a lot. Of, and there's a lot of kind of hunkering down with mm. nearest and dearest that mm. goes on. Like you said about Thanksgiving and yes. Yeah. Yeah. um but i uh, you do get slightly patronized by people Absolutely. in these six out of ten relationships telling you oh you're really lucky
3: and i think the one thing i i really liked that she she said uh, sort of to pull it out is this conflicting advice like you need to try and you need to try yeah. harder you need to do this you you need to have that um it is it is a really tricky one and i think i have experienced that feeling of where just, you just feel worn out of doing it all yourself, mm. whether that's just dealing with leaks or dealing with ageing parents on your own or, yeah. you know, all those sort of things that you sort of think, oh, I could just deal with a bit of a hand here.
2: I, I completely get it. And I, I completely, it, uh, frankly, it resonates with me. Mm. I think it's that unqualified backup that mm, you can absolutely. get. Absolutely. Um, and you don't even know when you've got it a lot of the time. And I've had it in the past. Don't have it now. And I think I do sometimes get nostalgic for it. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of always having someone who's got your back exactly that is quite who similar. doesn't want that. Yeah, yeah. And I
3: think friendship can go a long way oh, yeah. to providing yeah. that, um, but 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 not not all the way. No, often no. Um, and I think. But I also will say, I think that there are emotional reserves that you build up when you have been single for a long time that I think you maybe don't build up if you haven't been single as an adult for a very long time. Mm. Just because there are things you have to go through and cope with on your own. Um, The other thing that I get quite frustrated with is um, if I mention any kind of romantic possibility or a fling or someone I've met who I'm speaking to or dating and... The long time married, the six out of ten relationship people swoop in and say, "Do you like them? What's happening here? Are you going to see them again?" And I think, can you not just? Do you have to? Okay. Do you have to turn everything into? Well, hang on, what do you want, A long term relationship. Do you want them to do? Well, uh, just say, "Brilliant." Okay. That sounds fun, right? So, um, if you're one
2: of Jane's friends, that's what she <laughs> wants you to do. Okay. But I think but I think it's because they're bored and they wouldn't, yeah. they wouldn't.
3: Well, yes, they 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 want to hear about mm. the excitement and and what's fizzling and crackling but I think just this idea that every liaison you have has to be viewed through the prism of is this going to be a long term relationship Yeah, Um, yeah. I've written about this for the times I I, I think that one of the reasons why people accuse many women of not being good in inverted commas at one night stands by which I mean not dealing with them emotionally very well is because women are trained to look at every single liaison as
2: a prelude to a long term relationship your handsome prince
3: yeah Yeah, Yeah, and I think sometimes you can just have had a brilliant night with someone and leave it at that.
2: Yeah. If you're one of those people... (laughs) No, I'm serious. Jane and Fee at Times.Radio. You, we'll, you know, because we will do this, we will never use your name. Exactly. Um, so, unless you you know you expressly tell us that that's absolutely fine to do so. Um, we won't on. use your phone numbers either unless no, you no. really want us well, to. Then we will just read them out if you do want <laughs> us to use uh, your phone. Susanna has been to uh, the beautiful... Oh, she's been to Seville, to the train station. Oh, I love Seville. Where she has seen Together... Uh, Ken Follett has moved on. A new (laughs) lady. Uh, It was who was it? It was Dolly Dolly yesterday. Dolly Alderson yesterday. He's now cuddling up close to Isabel. A landing. Oh, Olandy. he gets around. He does he? get around player. old robe is <laughs> Ken fantastic. He is
3: um a the conversation
2: I had yesterday with Pen Vogel about food and the history of food, um, is interesting. A lot of people are interested in the whole broad bean thing. Yeah. Um, because broad beans, I mean, they're not very nice, I don't think. Um but <laughs> you were talking up the broad bean
3: something rotten yesterday. <laughs> I shouldn't have used rotten in reference to broad beans. Sorry about
2: that. No. Terrible turn of phrase. Um yes, I mean it's just not fair to say that I'm really isn't um, This is from Lynn who says, the food discussion I thought was really interesting and your guest recipe for serving broad beans sounded quite tasty much tastier than my first ever English school lunch back in 1956 <laughs> Oh crikey, uh, brace yourselves everybody back home we brought our own packed lunch of sandwiches something sweet and a bit of fruit my mother knew many ways with Marmite sandwiches, adding mint Cheese or chopped walnuts. Wow. But um, back to me and my first ever lunch. We'd arrived in England after the long sea journey from New Zealand. How long did that take? For my first school lunch. They left we, in 1952. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they gave me and my brother large helpings because they didn't want us to be hungry. Mm. Meat and gravy and potato were OK. But even if I'd had a large appetite, I could not have coped with the broad beans. (laughs) They'd obviously been boiled for quite a long time with no discernible flavour. The skins were wrinkled and the insides were a kind of dry, powdery paste. I couldn't manage them and was left to sit with the other children who couldn't finish their meals or were being wasteful. I only ordered small dinners after that, as those ghastly grey beans turned up quite often. They must have been one of the few foods in plentiful supply in those post-war years. Um, and I think, actually, Lynn does hark back to a time, and I didn't think it was a very good idea when children were made to finish their mm. plates and honestly i just don't think you should ever do that no. never ever force a child to eat
0: no.
2: so kate our producer today is making a sign she's making a sign what does she mean i don't know can i just say one more vegetable related yes. aside um
3: bringing it back to thanksgiving in a very circular way um in america Brussels sprouts don't have a bad reputation because the way that they cook Brussels sprouts is that they roast them or sort of fry them with onions and apple and nuts and they caramelise them and... Like, Brussels sprouts are almost a dessert. They're so delicious over there. So the when Brits come over and they see Brussels sprouts as a side in a fancy bistro in Brooklyn, they think it's bananas. But, um, but yeah,
2: I have converted many through a roast Brussels sprout. Well, you made a reasonably convincing case there for the Brussels sprout as a dessert, says so <laughs> Jane Mark. She'll never be invited back. Right. Um, I'm not think, going on
3: bake-off, am I? No.
2: Um, Kate, I think, wants me to bring in our guest, Anton De He is a former Strictly Pro dancer. He is now one of the judges on the BBC's biggest show. Um, And as ever, the programme is very much in the spotlight. People are always talking about it. A couple of big talking points this year. Leighton, one of the competitors. Is he just too good at dancing? And was the TV legend Angela Rippon really worthy of her place in Blackpool? Well, we will get to those very important questions. But first, I asked Anton about his latest book, a novel called The Paris Affair. There's dance history here, wartime intrigue, and a central Character called Ray Cohen, who changes his name to Raymond de Guise. Could that person be based on Anton himself? Well, he's a man of many talents, but as he told me, he can't quite do everything.
1: I can't build, as I'm finding out to my cost at home. <laughs> that could have been something I should have invested some time in learning how to build things.
2: So you've uh, got you've got men in, haven't you?
1: Yeah, we literally do. We have men in, uh, many men in. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's all coming together. But apart from that, I've pretty much got everything else covered, I think.
2: Well, I think you have. Oh, there's Where's no that? doubt about it. Um, can we go then to the book? Uh, and this is, um, I was going to say, its um, its there's a great narrative. It's um, combining some beautiful settings, some adventure, sh- some jeopardy, some romance. There's a bit of
1: everything in there. Let me ask you a question. I always worry with these things. And it's the same when I'm in the studio choreographing and having a lovely time. Um, I wonder if it's not just studio, what I call studio dancing. It's just I'm feeling it and I'm loving it and I'm in the studio and it's, and I'm looking in the mirror and it's great. Um, but you, as soon as you put it out in front of a, the audience, it doesn't resonate. And, and that's the most important thing about doing stuff you're not doing it for yourself. And that's why it's important that you have a, uh, a good sort of team around you. Mm. So I've got a wonderful team around me, and my specifically my publishers and my editor. Because all these wonderful stories and things I find fascinating and interesting, and subjects I think are brilliant and characters I think are wonderful, might not resonate with other people. Uh, so it's important that you've got somebody there that's going, mm, I don't know, really. Oh, I don't know really, and and I don't have any great ego about this sort of thing, so I'm happy. I've spent my life taking criticism, so I'm not really. I don't. I don't get offended deeply by it. Um. So that I, I can't remember what your question was, but th- no, well, don't worry.
2: A- the central character here is a man called Ray Cohen. Now he changes his name. Uh, to Raymond de Guise. Now, yeah. at this point, um, fully paid up Anton de Bec fans are going to say, "Right, well, Anton's changed his name, so Ray must be him. So it, there must be elements of you in Ray."
1: Uh, I mean, you know, again, it's that thing, you know, write about things you know. Um, it, it, potentially, but I've met lots of people in the in the, my life that have changed their name um, because sometimes you just sometimes I mean in in the context of the story I, I'm very much about I, I like the concept of upstairs and downstairs so if you remember that old show upstairs now and, and to Abbey's another classic one what goes on above stairs and below stairs I find all that stuff wonderful two lives coming together but never quite meeting um crossing over um and I find that same in people I think everybody's got the same sort of upstairs and downstairs about them so i look at people and i go i wonder what your story is i'm a terrible people watcher and um and this is the person i have i am in the office this is the person i am on stage this is the person i am on television but behind the scenes i actually you know like to make honey with my bees you know it's the sort of things so uh i find everybody's got a uh a downstairs as well as an upstairs. And and some people just want to have a new start and want a new identity. So they want to literally take their life and go, I don't want to go down this path anymore. I'm going to choose this path. In actual fact, I'm going to have a whole new beginning. This is me. I'm going mm. to move forward with this. And this is Raymond de Guise, really. He started in the East End, without giving too much away for people. Um, he started in the East End of London from a, a brother who was always in trouble and uh, a, f- a family that w- had, of a certain type uh, uh, continued along this and this was going to be their story moving forward, you can just yeah. see but he didn't want that life, he wanted a different life and he and in uh, and the story evolves in this in this novel uh, about Raymond's early life in the 20s, how he went to Paris he became a keen uh, dancer he met somebody, as often is the case, he met somebody who sort of changed his life and uh, his name change was part of it, and he took on this—say, not new persona, but he became the man he would want it to have been. Um, and that's Raymond, really. And we, we 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 discover all that in this book when it, in in the, the the part that's set in Paris during the early twenties.
2: I think people who don't know much about ballroom dancing will be interested in some of the history included in the book here. And there's a key point in the 1920s yeah. um, when the rhythm changed to, to a slightly different beat and the dancing changed with it, didn't it? Now, can you just tell us more about that?
1: Well, during the 20s, of course, you had the introduction of jazz uh, during the early part of the last century. Um, so between wars, and then you had the sort of Roaring Twenties with the Charleston, et cetera, et cetera, and so out of that evolved this new sort of faster rhythm in what became the quick step as we know it. Um, in that way, so before that, the sort of you know at the beginning of the last century, you you, you sort of everybody waltzed, but in a sort of courtly fashion. As we would know, the Viennese waltz, and then the in- what we what we was called the English waltz or the diagonal waltz, which is the waltz we all know today, the slow waltz. Let's say that started in about the the, the sort of early part of that's the that early twenties. Um, before that was sort of old time dancing like velitas and military two steps and what we would call the old time dancing filed waltz, which much more rotational waltzes, like a slower version of the Viennese. So uh, the dancing, as, as we as we know it now, sort of really evolved during that early part with the introduction of new styles of music and new crazes. Things like the one step, the Charleston, as we um, spoke about earlier, uh, the black bottom, all these sorts of dance styles. Not many of them sort of lasted. Uh, the Charleston has, because we still know the Charleston, but mm. a lot of them from that time we we sort of people don't know about anymore. A lot of those dances, a bit like the salsa, a, a lot of these things, what they do is they end up coming into the sort of dances as we know it to become a part of the dance. So the Charleston becomes a part of It has a, a sort of identity all of its own. But um, the but it was all influenced by what was going on around the world and in society, and music was a huge influence. So. As I say, jazz became a big influence.
2: Right. Um, there are also uh, scenes in the in the book set in the Second World War, and particularly based around a hotel, the Buckingham Hotel in London. Well,
1: that's, that's the the that's the, the leader of the part. That's our main sort of character.
2: Yeah. Was the- it was it based because there's all sorts of stuff going on at this hotel, and you've already mm. made the the reference I would well, have it, made to upstairs, downstairs. Is it yeah. based on a particular hotel? Uh,
1: no. It's this uh, no. All of this stuff is just. Oh snippets of bits i know so like the staircase would be the staircase to the ritz uh the, the ballroom would be a ballroom from another hotel the the chandeliers would be a, a chandeliers i remember from a different hotel archie adams Orchestra is, is orchestras that i've danced in front of many times and the white jackets are from so it's, this is all snippets of i mean it's almost a bit autobiographical really it's like the story of my life but mm. uh and, and also the story of characters and people I've heard stories about from my old teachers from back in the day. Wonderful people like Henry Jakes and Charles Theobald and lovely Maxwell Stewart. And all these wonderful names that conjure up these incredible sort of images of characters and stuff. So that's where all this stuff, all those sort of images come from and all those sort of characters come from, really.
2: Would you have, uh, is there a kind of preferred decade for you um, in which you could have been a dancer? When would you have chosen?
1: I'd love to have been around in the 20s. I'd love to have been around at there. Often people like to be around at the beginning of things. And I'd love to have been around at the beginning just to see how the world, because the world changed, you know, everything shifted and so in a way that it doesn't anymore. Life doesn't really shift. If you think about, I was having a conversation with those on, if you think about from the end of the last, or the beginning of the last century, so the end of the previous one. So when we we entered the last century with Queen Victoria on the throne, Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. By the time we get to the fifties, we have four monarchs, two world wars, and we put a man on the moon in another half a dozen years. That's quite a shift from people lighting the the, the lights in the street by hand. I mean, that's an, and then I think about what's gone from that moment to now. I mean, we've had advances in technology and medicine and the internet, etc., yeah. etc. Cetera, et cetera, but I wouldn't suggest. Things have happened quite as dramatically.
2: Well, I don't know. And we don't, we don't really know what the next decade will hold for us. I no. mean, like artificial intelligence. Um, will, will there be that's a time it. when robots compete on Strictly?
1: Depends if you're dancing with, it.
0: <laughs> Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because rust new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from rust Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science. With beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. I was
2: talking today in the absence of Fee, just on my own, to the TV legend Anton Debeck, the Strictly judge. Now, I asked him if there was any truth to the rumour that 79-year-old TV legend Angela Rippon was always going to make it to the Blackpool round of Strictly. In other words, Anton, were the judges told they had to keep her in? No.
1: Are you mad? No. If she was was terrible in week one, she'd have been first to go probably. It, It doesn't really work that way.
2: Really? Yeah. So if she had, and I take your point, week one, she was actually brilliant, standout performance. But did she deserve it on her dance ability, without patronising somebody, Mm. to get to Blackpool? Yes. Without question?
1: Yeah. But we had the opportunity as judges to eliminate her. And we chose not to, because she Uh, was worthy of her place in the dance-off to stay in the competition. But... you, uh, yeah. Because the, the suggestion is is that we care more about who stays in and who goes out than we do. We don't care. It makes no difference to us. What difference does it make to me? The producers don't speak to me. They don't come to me and go, listen, we wouldn't mind it if you kept such and such in. There's a big building. You know this. You're, you're not, you've been doing this long enough. You know exactly how it works. You have the BBC building and next door to it, you have a building that's even larger and that's called compliance. And if there was any hint of fiddling or people getting involved where they shouldn't the whole thing would come off yeah it'd be taken off I'm glad you say it
2: because I think a lot of people if they felt it was in any way fixed would be very disappointed
1: well I'd be massively disappointed what would be the point what would be the point of trying so hard? If it's fixed, I might as well just come in. Let's go and have lunch. I'll have Tuesday off. I've got a round of golf booked on Tuesday. Can we? I'll see you on Wednesday. How's that? Yeah, fine. All right. I'll see you. Wednesday. All, All right. You've, anyway.
2: Anton, you've dealt with that. Let's move on to Leighton, who is quite brilliant and whose performances with Nikita just light up my living room. And I'm yeah. sure I'm not the only one. But there are people carping and saying the guy's too good. He's too good a dancer. It's well, not fair. Well, he's
1: good. I'll give you that. He is very, very good. Is he too good? I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, he hasn't been great every week. I mean, I didn't love his jive. I gave him an eight. So did C- Craig. I didn't love something else. He did Viennese or something I didn't love that much. Uh, this week, I thought it was, it was extraordinary. I thought his Argentine tango was amazing. I thought his quick step was great. So it hasn't all been great. It's some of it. And he hasn't been top of the leaderboard every week. I think Ellie's probably been top of the leaderboard more than he has. So interestingly is, the, th- the interesting thing about Leighton is when he's good, he's extraordinarily
3: good. Yeah. He's
1: just not great. I mean, I looked at, uh, you know, I watched the show on Saturday night from the side there, watching it the, the, as a judge. And my favourite dance of night was uh, Angela Scanlon's Tango. I just liked it. I gave, I gave three people 10 because I just thought their dances were extraordinary. Leighton, Ellie and Angela. And if I had to pick one of the three, my, I would have gone for Angela. as my personal favourite. The thing about Leighton, though, is when he's good, he's he's extraordinarily good, sort of like ridiculously good. But then when he's not so great, the problem he has, of course, is that massive sense of disappointment hmm. uh, because the expectation is so high. So when in earlier, when he's doing a ballroom dance or he's doing a proper uh, standard sort of Latin dance or something. And and it might not be as good. Then everyone, it's unfair, really. But this, such is life. Well, we we talked. um, Disappointment.
2: We talked a couple of weeks ago to Shirley Ballas on Mm. on our program, and it was lovely to meet her. I thought she was an incredible woman, actually, really Mm. impressive. But she was very honest about the abuse she gets, and she did say that she didn't feel that you got it to the same degree, and I I gather that Craig doesn't either. He just couldn't care less. Um, No, I don't know.
1: I don't read it so it's very difficult for me to comment on that. I have I have an attitude about it. I don't I don't I don't read it. So as far as I'm concerned everybody thinks I'm amazing. I don't need to know the truth. <laughs> so I I live in this lovely fantasy that everybody thinks I'm great. And if I was to uh, read everything that's written about me I probably wouldn't leave the house. So I feel like it's not it's it's not a good thing for me to do so I don't do it.
2: That's the thing do answer. you I think Shirley feels that basically women get clobbered and the male judges are largely free to go about their business and and say exactly what's on their mind. They are. I can't tell you.
1: I don't know what to say say about it. I don't agree. I don't disagree because I don't know. I I haven't got an answer. I just that's how she feels. And she's fully well within her rights to think that way. I don't because I don't read it. I can't. I have no comparison. So I can't say, oh, yeah, I don't get it very badly. She gets it terrible. I know she gets it terribly. And I and I think it's appalling. I think it's dreadful. But then I don't understand it, you see. Yeah, so it's very yeah, difficult well, to on it.
2: Most people don't understand it because it's not no, something we'd ever do. Can, exactly, we, can we talk so just it a bit sense about, sense. I mean, you mentioned or you alluded to dancing in the past with the likes of Anne Whittacombe. I mean, it was amazing telly. It and does. anyone who says they didn't enjoy it, they're lying. lying. But, uh, is it fair or should we encourage politicians of any type to take part in, in reality television.
1: Yeah, but only when they've retired. Anne said to me, I only I'm only doing it because I've retired from politics. I wouldn't do it. Vince Cable did it once while he was still in politics. He danced with Erin on a Christmas special, did a trot nice. And I know he dances with his wife. Socially, they dance as a hobby. They dance for pleasure. have lessons and they dance and they dance nicely. It's a lovely trot. i danced dance with Erin. But no, I don't think they should, really. I think they should be doing their day job. It's. I, I think this. I, I think I. I would suggest it's ill advised because I'm not sure how you think it's going to come out for you. For a start off, it seems like an odd choice of thing to do when you're you're an active politician. So uh, Anne did it when she had retired, and I fully understood that.
2: What about um, you? I think a lot of people, um, including me, I, I was very shocked when I heard more about your your early life and your upbringing and the really cruel treatment that you got at the hands of your your father. Mm. You are now, you're Mr. Saturday night. It's it's all laughs and, you know, it's slightly over the top and it's life enhancing. It's a bit of fun.
1: Slightly over the top. I've never been so offended.
2: I know. I'm so Okay, I went too far there. I, I'll take that back. Um, but you are someone who enhances other people's lives after actually quite a tough start to your own. I mean, I'm sounding like a cod psychologist here. But do you <laughs> do you feel? Uh, are you someone who does want to just cheer people up?
1: Yeah. Uh, yes, I do. In actual fact, not. Uh, I mean, it sounds a bit contrived now when you say it out loud like that. And it's not really. I mean, what's the other option? to not to do the opposite to make them feel worse about themselves i can't see the value in that at all so as far as i'm concerned it it, yeah i mean and you're supposed to be entertaining so my my attitude is to my responsibility is to make sure everybody has a great time by and by being entertaining now that doesn't mean you know being ridiculous or over the top as you so cruelly put it um (laughs) But it is to be, you know, I I think positivity is everything, really. I have to be honest with you.
2: Best dance you've ever seen on Strictly?
1: Gosh, probably one of the ones I did. Uh, uh, Oh, gosh, I've seen so many. I mean, just from this year, I think one of the best things I've ever seen uh, was Angela Scanlon's Charleston, the Fosse Charleston, the one that Fosse did with uh, Gwen Verdon. She did a, a, a version of that with Carlos. I just, thought it was ex- I just thought it was extraordinarily good. I didn't give it a 10. I, I felt like I should have done. I felt like I've shortchanged it, really. But it, I thought it, maybe it was because it was so early in the composition. I felt it was a bit out of the blue. But um, that, I just feel that has been the most extraordinary moment of the dance. I mean, you'd go back to Rose, Rose's dance with Giovanni. Yeah. I mean, ground, groundbreaking. I mean, that's probably too big a word. No, this but, is when the dance
2: when the music stopped.
1: Yeah, stunningly yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Do you know what? The, the, do you know the thing I felt sad about, really, because it never gave it enough credit. We, we, she didn't really want the judges to mention the fact that she couldn't hear; she was deaf. And I, and I wanted to go. Can I just say? And I know the, the, that, that taking that dance away because that was sort of symbolic. So, can I just say? I wanted to say to her. Because she started things oh out of hold. She'd only be one end of the room, she'd be at the other, and then she'd start in time beautifully just by looking at him. I just wanted to, because people did, I felt like people sort of forgot if mm. you can, in ridiculous fashion that she can't hear the, you know she can't hear the music right. And you oh God, really? I've no idea. She was she was so so extraordinary.
2: Yeah,
1: I felt that we underplayed it a bit. Really, I just would like to have gone. Oh my God, and you can't hear. For God's sake. It's ridiculously brilliant. So I did, you know, but she didn't want to do it, so we respected her her wishes on that.
2: Anton Dubeck there, just reminiscing about the, the absolutely brilliant Rose Ailing Ellis, who was the dancer who won Strictly, I think, the year before last. Not last year, but the year before that. And um, she did it with Giovanni, and they were absolutely amazing. Absolutely brilliant. So lovely to spend time with Anton and the book, The Paris Affair. I don't know if there's any steam in it. I'd have to ask Fee. I'll consult her next week. Oh, I'm seeing her tomorrow. And indeed, I'm seeing you tomorrow. Yes. We've got a special afternoon tea here at Times Towers for lucky subscribers who wanted to come along. I'm looking forward to
3: it. Yeah, I hope Fee's well enough for her scones tomorrow. Yes, there's going to be mm. a full cream
2: tea, isn't there? Yeah. Which, after a tummy bug, is just what you need. <laughs> <laughs> is it
3: one down from a Thanksgiving dinner, really? Oh, God. You're right. Don't stop going on about your sprouts. I'll, and I'll, uh, I'll bring the Gaviscon. Yeah. I think it might be more emodium that's
2: required. But anyway, yeah. um, have a lovely evening and- Have a good weekend as well because we are back. Fee and I, hopefully, everything crossed. I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, We'll see you Monday. But it's Jane and Fee at Times.radio if you've anything to contribute. We're bringing the shutters down on another episode of the internationally acclaimed podcast off air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. But don't forget that you can get another two hours of us every Monday to Thursday afternoon here on Times Radio. We start at 3pm and you can listen for free on your smart speaker. Just shout Play Times Radio at it. Uh, You can also get us on DAB Radio in the car or on the Times Radio app whilst you're out and about being extremely busy. And you can follow all our tosh behind the mic and elsewhere on our Instagram account. Just go on to Insta and search for Jane and Fee and give us a follow. So in other words, we're everywhere, aren't we, Jane? Pretty much. Everywhere. Thank you for joining us. And we hope you can join us again on Offair very soon.
0: Small details are big surfaces?